Well, good morning. I was at a, a birthday party yesterday, uh, not a kid's birthday party. We don't have too many of those young ones anymore. Uh, but a 60-year-old man's birthday party. Uh, and it was just an interesting uh, evening in a number of ways. I wasn't there too long, but I had a few people who, they know what I do, obviously, in terms of being a pastor. And, and they asked me the question, so how long have you been at, at the church in 17 years? And so do you still enjoy what you're doing? And it was interesting because my immediate response was, yeah, there's nothing else I would rather be doing than this. And so it was an interesting question posed to me that I was even a little bit caught off guard and surprised at my own answer and how quick my own answer was because I thought, you know, I get the privilege of telling people how great God really is. And what an amazing gift and privilege that that is. And so partly I ask you the question, even as I've been reflecting on that in the last uh, 24 hours or so, is, is when did you first realize this? When did you first come to know how good God is? Because that's really in many ways what we're talking about here today in, in Paul's text today. And I remember, and I've shared this story many times for me, it was in 1984 at a camp in BC that changed everything for me, where I really encountered God in a way that he got a hold of my life in a unique way where the old life was gone and the new life had begun and it changed how I viewed the world. It changed how, uh, what I wanted to do with my life. It changed my desires. It changed how I love people. It changed even my desire to serve God in different ways and all because of experiencing the power of God's love in Jesus that absolutely wrecked me that summer in a way that I had never encountered before. It was new laws that were ruling my life, but it felt like freedom. It was where I found hope. It was what now shaped my identity, and it was how I wanted to live. And it all felt different. And this is the point that I think Paul is getting to today in the text, in Romans chapter 7. And again, I'd encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 7 as we'll begin to look at this text and uh, in the first few verses today, just verses 1 to 6, Romans 7 is, is one of the most disputed uh, sections of Scripture in all of the book of Romans for a variety of reasons, mostly in the next section, actually, which we're going to look at next week, which is why I gave it to a guest speaker who's coming to share with us and didn't do it myself. Brian Bourne will be here uh, from Columbia Bible College. But when he was coming, I asked, well, do you want to just join in into the Roman series? And he said, oh, he was very eager to do that. So I said, well, here's your text. And that's just the way it lined up. So that's good. We'll let him deal with that. But today, uh, we're going to go into this transition text of Romans uh, 7, 1 to 6, and where Paul again sums up what has come before, and he points to what is coming next. And again, in summary, many of the sermons and, and the texts that we've looked at leading up to this, uh, one summary that you could say is that the law has unleashed sin or at least revealed sin, and sin leads to death. But Christ ushered in grace, and grace lives and reigns in our lives. And so now we have the law of Christ, rather than the law of Moses, which served a purpose for the people of Israel for a very significant reason. So in many ways, the Jews, the people of Israel, they would have seen the law, or the Torah, the law of Moses, whatever you want to call it, they would have seen this as what gave them hope for new life. They would have seen the Torah as what gave them their source of identity as a people, as the people of God. This is what gave them their identity. They also would have seen it as a guide 
for how to live, sort of their code of conduct. How is it that we live as God's people? And that's what they would have seen the law as. But Paul is now saying, because of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, he says it's changed, it's different. And what Paul is now saying is that our hope, our identity, our ethics, all of those things need to be found in Jesus. This is the new law of Christ that we are pointing to, that that Paul is pointing us to, that is now among us. And so Paul repeats some themes that are previous themes, even in chapter 6, again in a different way. He comes at them again, and, and as I've said before, I'm so thankful for repetition. It's a key teaching tool that uh, is used by teachers and people all over the world that you just re- repeat. Repetition is a really good thing. Paul is using that here. I find that that's a good thing. I'm in good company because uh, uh, beating things to death apparently is one of my spiritual gifts, according to some wonderful people who love me and who are close to me. And, and so I'm in good company again. Paul is, is good at repeating and summarizing, and now he's transitioning. And so as we begin in, in chapter 7, we see that Paul starts with a principle, and then he goes to an illustration right away. So first of all, the principle and the illustration. Now before I get to that, I want to just talk about illustrations uh, for a minute and, and metaphors. And we've probably all done this. We've, we've tried to explain something with an analogy or a metaphor or an illustration and we assume it will help. And we think, well, if I use this analogy or this illustration, it, it will help people understand in one way or another. Um, sometimes it actually doesn't, right? And you've experienced that. Now, there's the obvious mangled metaphors that are very unhelpful. Uh, things like, you know, never lick a gift horse in the mouth. Um, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. That's not quite right. Um, these hemorrhoids are a real pain in the neck. You thought I was going to say something else. Dan Quayle, leader in the States, once famously said, if we don't succeed, we run the risk of failure. (laughs) Or Boris Johnson, everybody's uh, uh, favorite former mayor of London, now British Foreign Secretary, secretary, the guy with the crazy hair, uh, he once said, I could not fail to disagree with you less. I don't even know what that means. But also illustrations. Sometimes illustrations that we use we think will be very helpful, but they too can take us down different paths that we don't want to, and we we miss the point. So again, if you think of, let's say that there was two people talking together, and they're they're talking about a couple who's struggling in their marriage. And they're they're really genuinely wanting to help. It's not gossip, they're actually just really talking about it and they're they're really wanting to understand you know, what it is that this couple's going through. And, and so the one, you know, uses the illustration. And, and as they're talking about it, they go, yeah, you know, just like Bruce and Lisa's marriage, you know, really struggling at times. You know, this couple, so, so they're, you know, they're struggling and they really need some help in this area. And the other person is just thinking, Bruce and Lisa's marriage is in trouble? Like, what's going on? Like, Bruce is such a jerk. I mean, I can't believe he's not treating Lisa right. I mean, those pastors, they always think that they have it so hard. But they have no idea how hard the life of a pastor's wife is. Meanwhile, the conversation is still going on. And so how could we help this couple? And you're like, huh? Uh, What couple? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the illustration that you think is going to help just sort of takes you down this path that you go, okay, I don't know if that actually helped the point that we're making. And it takes on a life of its own. And in some ways, that could happen in our text today. Because as I said, Paul, he 
teaches a principle, and then he gives an illustration to help reinforce the principle. Let's have a look. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. So he starts with this. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? There's the principle. Then he goes to an illustration. He says, for example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as she is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So again, the principle that Paul is saying is that the law applies only while a person is living. And then the illustration that he gives is this Old Testament law that he would have assumed that the original hearers would have understood as a de facto kind of thing. Well, like, you get this. You know this Old Testament law found in Deuteronomy 24 and other places in the Old Testament about divorce and and remarriage. So he starts by saying, well, you know this. You who know the law, I mean, you understand this. Now, with the principle that he starts with, there was a well-known teaching or maxim of the rabbis at that time, the Jewish rabbis, that went something like this. It said, if a person is dead, he is free from the Torah or the law and the fulfilling of its commandments. Seems like a pretty straightforward thing. If you're dead, you can't actually live it out. Um, And so that was this teaching or understanding or this saying that the rabbis had. And so people would have understood that. And Paul is referring to that in many ways. And so he's saying the law only applies while a person is living. Or in the NIV, it says that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives. And then Paul gives this illustration or example, again, that he would have assumed that people have been very familiar with. They would have understood it, and for him it was underlying the point, the main point that he was making. And so again, the illustration in verse 2 and 3, that he's going back to this teaching of marriage and divorce, and they would have been very familiar with it. But here's the part where we can get lost, and we can get sidetracked in the illustration. Because you see, Paul is not concerned here to teach about marriage and divorce. He's citing an example that he would assume that they would know from the law, from the Torah, and he's doing that in order to make a theological point, in order to say something that he's actually talking about. This is actually the point, but his illustration for them that they would have understood, but for us as we read this text, we can in some ways miss the point that Paul is making and get lost in the illustration. So what is the point? Well, let's go on to verse 4. In the NLT, it nicely translates it in this way that makes it very clear. It says, so my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. That's helpful. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. This is the point. This is the point that that Paul is making here. He's saying, this is what you need to understand. That you have died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. Now you're united with Christ, the one that is raised from the dead, whose spirit now lives among you, as he comes to a little bit later, in order to produce a harvest of good deeds for God's glory. In other words, that we can experience this kingdom of God as God intended in some measure now, that you are called to live out of this truth in a very real way, that you don't have to live live dead to sin. You don't have to live dead to the law that has been holding you back. 
And so you can produce this incredible fruit of righteousness, is what he's saying. Now, we've been talking again, repetition, of throughout this Roman series about three different ways to think about works. Because it seems like we get confused around these ways to think about works. Now, the first way is works as a principle. That, that, that works is actually what saves you. It is the thing that, that saves you. And many world religions have that as part of their foundational teaching and understanding that you have to earn favor with God, that you have to work enough to win God's approval and favor in order for salvation. The second category of works is the works that comes out of the Jewish law, out of the Torah, actually. And that's what Paul was speaking about in Galatians, and we're going to look at some of those texts in a little while, where people would add back in things of the law of Moses or the Torah to their faith, and they would say, well, you know, if you keep these things and you keep doing the works of the law, then you will be even more righteous, and it'll be even better for you. Okay, so that's the second category. The third category of works, which is what Paul speaks to in a positive way all the time, is the works that comes from faith. It is the works that comes out of this salvation and out of response of what God has done for you by grace. And so it's not a works to earn right favor with God. It's a works that comes out of a joy and a response because you have right favor with God. And so that's the difference. And that's what Paul is pointing to. So sometimes we get the idea that works is all bad or that, no, 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 it should never be. Well, you can't read the New Testament and think that because Paul speaks about living out our ethics, our code of conduct, how we are called to live, which is the law of Christ. It's not the law of Moses anymore. It's a different kind of law. So just to understand that, but it comes out of a changed heart, changed attitudes, changed actions that come out of that because of what Christ has done and it leads us to serving God with much fruit. Because we recognize the freedom that we have from our sins. So let's keep reading the last uh, two verses here in our text today. In verse 5. When we are controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God. Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit. You know, throughout Romans and throughout Paul's writings, he comes back to this over and over again. You know, I was sharing with, uh, as we were praying together with the worship team just early this morning for this morning's service, I, I shared with the group there, I said, you know, all the repetition here so far in Romans, I think I've needed this. Because it's finally sinking in for me. And finally helping me to understand how much I live by the law. And how much I need to embrace this freedom that we have in Christ. And this law of Christ that is there for each one of us. I I said to them, I said, I finally feel like I'm starting to get it. May that be an encouragement to you. I think we all subtly fall back into the, the legalism and the law that binds us and holds us back. And there's this freedom in Christ, this law of Christ that we are invited to that is a a new life that we can produce great works for God to his glory and be free from things that hold us back. I've shared this with a number of people, um, the specifics of this story, but a few weeks ago, Lisa and I had the chance to be in, in BC and, and we were invited to be a pastor on campus at Columbia Bible College. And so spent a week there speaking in, cha- I spoke in chapel and, and taught in classes and just meeting with 
with uh, students. Lisa was meeting with a bunch of girls. I was meeting with guys. And there was a dorm unit meeting on a Monday night. And, and I was asked to speak to the, the whole men's dorm. And I thought, well, there's an interesting challenge. What do I speak about there? So as I prayed about it, I, I went back to a, actually a talk that I did in junior high many years ago when Chandra asked me to speak to the boys. And I just, and it was simply called, uh, The Kind of Guys I Want Dating My Daughters. I thought, that'll be provocative. I know there's guys in that school who want to date my daughters. <laughs> and so we did a teaching out of Psalm 101. And Psalm 101 is this great text that, that David is just coming before the Lord and he's just proclaiming this truth of his identity and who he is in Christ and, and about being, uh, having integrity and about living with purity and being blameless. And so here I am sitting with like 70, 80, I don't know how many guys there. We're talking about these things. And we're talking about pornography, and we're talking about what does it mean to live in purity, and we're talking about what does it mean to live blameless, and to be men of integrity, and to be brothers to each other, to support each other in this journey, and so on and so forth. And how the very opposite of that, when we live in shame and guilt because of our sin, it holds us back and actually causes us to shrink back from leading. Which is why, for so many men, it's hard to lead in the church and to lead in our families because we're, we're clouded with this guilt and shame because of this stuff. But this law of Christ says, no, you can live in freedom. You can find forgiveness in this. And you don't have to live there. You can be in a new place of freedom that God will do a new work in you and change you and bring you to a whole new place. And it was, it was so encouraging. Even the next day, I had a couple of guys come and they said they had the best dorm unit meetings that night. They were praying for each other, repenting and, and so on, making commitments, this band of brothers of serving together. Uh, there's a new way to live in the Spirit, is what Paul is saying. And it's freedom. It's not of the law anymore. So this law of Christ, no longer the law of Moses, but a new covenant found in Jesus, fueled by His Holy Spirit. And you know, today we come to the communion table and we will talk about the new covenant. And the bread and the cup, they, they reflect this new covenant of the law of Christ. That it's not the old covenant anymore. It's this new covenant of Jesus that we celebrate. I want to read just a, a couple of texts. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 to 21, talks about this law of Christ. And it gives you some examples. Paul talks about this in a number of places in his letters. Here he's writing to the church in Corinth and he says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. And when I was with the Jews, I lived like the Jews, like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law, even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So here's an example of where Paul is speaking of this very specifically. And even though it doesn't come out in this Roman, that, that phrase in this Roman 7 text, that's what, he's, that's what he's talking about. If you flip over to Galatians, as Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he also talks about the law of Christ. And he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin... You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. 
You think you're too important to help someone, you're not only fooling yourself, you're only fooling yourself, you're not that important. Interesting line. So Paul is saying, you know what, to come alongside another brother or sister and to help them when they are struggling with sin or they're, they're struggling in this legalism, they're struggling in the law of Moses, they're struggling with whatever they're struggling with that's holding them back, that the law of Christ is what compels you to go and to share with them and to walk with them and to share their burdens together. Because the law of Christ brings out a love response from us that is measurable, that's different. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this church and, and you people as the church and the many, many, many expressions of love that happen because of the law of Christ. And even just this week, just even seeing uh, Chandra with Caitlin and the love that, that you've had, Chandra, for her and, and just being in the hospital with her and, and bringing other people and loving on her in, in all kinds of ways. I think of Dolores and the funeral and the care ministry that she does and serving above and beyond and just the love of Christ that compels. And those who, who serve on her teams and, and continue to serve and will again this week of just because of the love of Christ of just serving other people. I think of a, a group of four guys who went and cleaned out a basement yesterday just to help out because of the love of Christ for people. I think of people who serve with our refugee resettlement teams and who've given hours and hours to help these families and bless them and encourage them because of the law of Christ and to love extravagant life. And over and over again, where it's people who go bring shawls and visit people and sing and serve in care homes and hospitals. It happens all over the place, most of which nobody knows about. You're just loving people because of what Christ has done. What a blessing. You know, Paul, he spoke to this so often, so often. And if you, if you take the study guide that's at the back, and maybe your small group is looking at that, there's a whole bunch of references there that you can look up. Let me just touch on a couple of them. Where, where Paul talks about this new life in the Spirit, this new life in the law of Christ, as opposed to the law of Moses. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 8, he says, He has enabled us to be ministers of this new covenant. Just listen to these words. I don't have them on the screen. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. The old way, with laws etched in stone, led to death though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? Listen to Paul in Galatians 2, verses 19 to 20. Paul says, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to Paul as he continues on in Galatians 5. He says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. 
These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. This theme comes through again and again and again for Paul. Further on in Galatians 5, it says, Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to, this, to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So Paul is pointing to this new covenant, this new law, the law of Christ, that is ruled by the Spirit of God within us. And the Spirit of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, lives within you and lives among us, his people. And this truth that you have died to sinful nature, that you don't have to live there anymore. You've died to the law of Moses. You're no longer bound by those laws. Just like somebody who moves to Saskatchewan from B.C. Doesn't live under the laws of B.C. anymore. You're under a new regime. Different laws. Paul's saying you don't live under those laws anymore. You now live for Christ by the power of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is now evident within you. The verses I didn't read right there in Galatians are the ones that are probably the most well-known. Where Paul says... Here's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the law of Christ. This is what happens when the Spirit of God has gotten a hold of you and changed your life, changed your priorities, changed your worldview, changed your outlook on life. And if those things aren't surging up within you, within us, we have to ask the question, do we actually really understand this gospel? Have we actually really embraced what God has done for us through Jesus? Have we actually repented of our sins and found that freedom that we can have by not being bound by this old laws anymore? So we're called to follow Christ's law and to love extravagant life. In Galatians Five again, verse 13 to 14. Listen to these verses. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know where Paul was getting that from, right? Matthew chapter 22, if you turn to Matthew chapter 22, where... Jesus was asked by the religious leaders who, who knew the law of Moses very well. They were immersed in it. They were saturated with it. This is what guided their life. And so one of them, it says in, in Matthew 22, verses 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees to his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, what is the most important commandment of the law of Moses? And here's the law of Christ that he points to. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. It says the entire law and all of its demands and all of the prophets are based on these two commandments. I mean... Wouldn't that, be a start, wouldn't that have been a startling thing for those religious leaders? 
you know, they knew this law, which was so long, and they had added over 600 other rules to the law just to make sure that they got it adequately. And they said, what's the most important one? And Jesus says, here it is. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Have a good day. He says, you need to learn to love extravagantly. Because you need to learn that when you understand what Jesus has done on the cross, and when you have understood what this body and blood broken for you has done for you, it changes and reorients everything about how you live. And you learn to love deeply with people who don't deserve to be loved. You learn to forgive deeply with people who don't deserve to be forgiven. And you learn that that love requires a response. And how we live, and how we prioritize our money, how we prioritize our time, and how we respond. You know, one of the one of the best books I've read recently, and many of you maybe have read this too, is a book by Bob Goff called Love Does. And he's in the book it, it says it this way. He says, When love is a theory, it's safe. It's free of risk. But Jesus doesn't call us to a life free of risk and a life that is safe. One of the greatest lies are these two words, someone else. In other words, someone else will go. Someone else will do it. Someone else will love extravagantly. Someone else will sacrifice. But the truth is, is that God didn't send someone else. God went himself to the cross. That's because love isn't stationary. Love isn't just good intentions or always planning for it or thinking about it. But simply put, love does. So I pray that this law of Christ will rule our hearts. That it will cause within us a reorientation of our minds as we'll see later on in Romans. That we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that our bodies And our lives will be like a living sacrifice, live for others. And that we will get out of our self-centeredness to see the needs all around us and love extravagantly. May God give us that grace to do that well. May God give me that grace to do that well. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us that is so extravagant. And again, we just confess that we so often take it for granted. That we so often take for granted the things that you have done for us. The freedom that we have in Christ. The forgiveness of sins. The power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to embrace these things in new ways. And by doing that and understanding and internalizing this law of Christ, may you help us to love extravagantly. Help us to get beyond ourselves. Help us to do it for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to change us, to transform us, and to make us more and more into your image. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.